Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. If I look down at any point, it's not because I find you boring. That's just, okay. just so you know. And if That's I look fine. at my watch as well, yeah. likewise. Today I am joined by the JMK award-winning director, the director of My Name is Rachel Curry, Josh Roach. Josh, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Lovely Thanks for being here. here. I don't know if you've heard any of these podcasts before, Josh, but how they start is I ask you how it all started with you. Right. Uh, so here we go. Uh, you growing up, where was that? And did the arts and theatre feature heavily at all? Um, so I grew up in uh, Sussex near Tunbridge Wells in a sort of weird middle class, white, uh, tum- you know, very sort of privileged, classic middle class upbringing in southeast England. So in some ways, actually quite boring. Um, Great. We'll end there. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. That's it. That's it. <laughs> no, but it, it was seriously, it was it was a lovely lovely place to grow up, lovely family and all the rest of it. And um, I first kind of uh, encountered theatre when I was uh, at school. Um, and it was a headmaster who clearly just really liked plays. I think he probably wanted to be an actor at one point. Um, and so he would direct these shows. And we must have been about 10 or 11. And there was a really precocious kid in our class who um, we were all reading the play around. And then his character died. And so he decided he would fall off his chair. And he fell off his chair and the headmaster started laughing and everybody laughed. And it was just a moment of going, oh, right. (laughs) There was something in that of just going, oh, he just sort of did it. And that was better than just saying it. And um, and so, yeah. I was hunting back for what that first moment was when I... I thought you were going to say that you were the precocious kid. No, I was not. No, 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 no. This was a a much more intelligent (laughs) kid called Richard Macklin, who I'm sure has no idea what he started. Well, where is he now? (laughs) I don't know. I didn't keep in touch. He was a very, very good musician, so he's probably doing something much cooler. You know, he's probably a band somewhere. So that's cool. Then if the team of researchers here at the Young Vic are correct, you went to the University of Warwick? I did go to the University of Warwick, yeah. Um, To do theatre? No, I did English and creative writing. So, um, again, you know, coming from a slightly posh part of England, I um, uh, basically, I, 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 st- I really got into poetry in my teens and, and wrote a lot of it and read a lot of it and was really a geek about it. And it was that that meant I got into Warwick um, after sort of slightly messing up my exams um, with on the strength of my, my creative writing, basically. Um, and then spent my whole time at Warwick doing theatre. Um Warwick's an incredible place for that. And, and I really like... A couple of journalists have written some pieces about it over the last couple of years because there have been so many good companies coming out of um, Warwick, um, especially, and have made great success of Edinburgh, especially like Breach Theatre is the most recent one. Um, uh, before that, Barrel Organ, Curious Directive with Jack Lowe, um, Bert Lesker, who just did Euro House, and this year, um, Palmyra. Um, you know, and, and the university, I don't quite know how or whether they even meant to do it, but they've got something right in the way that the arts centre is right in the middle of the campus. I don't know if you know the mm-hmm. university at all, but there's basically a theatre right in the middle. Um, and they, you know, you students, you pitch for a show. There's two shows a term, which is much less than some other um, universities. But that show gets full funding. You get everything. You get the studio, you get to do it, you get to sell it properly, you know, and it's... And it's, you know, there are some awful shows that get done as a result. <laughs> and the one I did was pretty awful as well. I mean, the first thing I ever did at Warwick was, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it was it was Dante's Inferno in one hour with six people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like you just get to, and it was 
utterly, utterly awful. Um, and you just, but you just get to be madly ambitious and stupid and get all your bad ideas out the way and kind of learn how to do it all. And, uh, and, um, and the university kind of just puts the faith in you to do that and gives you the money to do it. And that's great. And that writing that you did at university, how does that? How has that informed you as a director? How, do you see plays and go, "Oh, well, I'd have done it slightly differently"? Does that make you direct it in a different way? Um, I no, I think it's. Uh, I think my directing came out of that. So, you know, I there's a load of stuff I'm really not very good at. So I'm really not very good at devising because I can't deal with the floorboards not being in place. You know, I need to know what the script is and I need to feel like there's a, a, a floorboard there and then I can be, I feel I can be a bit more creative after that. Um, and so, uh, the you know, how I now choose to direct is all based on the fact that I'm quite interested in language and always kind of have been. Um, and then I'm quite interested in storytelling and the structure of storytelling. Um, and I'm always sort of uh, like blown, out, blown away by writers who manage to like... Um, I really love stylist prose writers. So people like Michael Shaban and um, and people like that who just manage to just put combinations of things together that you just would never have got anywhere near. I just find them the most exciting people to, to read. Um, and um, I mean, George Saunders, he just won the booker as well. I mean, I remember reading him at uni and was just like blown away. So those those writers and those playwrights that do that as well you know, Tony Kushner being the, the one that he just puts impossible scenes next to each other. And you go, I mean, when I was watching Angels of America at the National, you just sit there going, none of this should work. Like on every sort of writer's workshop level that is given to young playwrights, you're all told not to do this. You know, don't do a really long 20 minute scene set in the Arctic where there's no real story going on and two people are just talking because it'll never work. And Kushner just does it one after the other and they all work. Um, and I love those writers that just go, I have no idea how you got there. and <laughs> no, idea, no idea how you manage that. You Do you, are you still a writer now or are you focusing uh, on directing? Not really. I, no, yeah. I mean, that, there's obviously a novel that I, I'm writing <laughs> when I get bored and unemployed. But yeah, no. What's it about? Have you started it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I'm not going to talk oh, go about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very bad is all you need to Can know. Can I be in it? Yeah, sure. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> you just got yourself a chat. <laughs> um, so apart from the writing, what about the, the, the reading as well? Because I know that you have done a lot of script reading yeah. in the past for, for, for people and organisations. Yeah. What do you look for in a good story? What When you sit down and you think, oh, that, that that's interesting. That's got legs. That's got mileage in it. And, yeah. and conversely, that, that's a load of old tut. That won't work. What? Yeah. Um, so I think the fund, the thing that really just knocks everything else out of the park, which I think is always true, is that if, if it moves you and, and, and that sounds like a really simple thing but it is really difficult and really rare um but like moving theater is the reason we're all in the game we're not you know you can go and see shows that are very cool and very stylish and and look great but you'll always remember the show that made you cry even if it wasn't very cool or wasn't very stylish or didn't feel very like up to date theatrically in terms of what the latest trends are in in productions you know that those ones that just like move your heart a few inches to the left it's those ones that I I think are extraordinary and so when that happens you always know that everything else is worth trying to fix anyway so it kind of covers up all the other the other sins now I think I think when but when you're reading in a theatre it's very different jobs isn't it because you're um, I read for a couple of years at Soho and I was the guy who read all the unsolicited scripts those are people without agents just sending in their first plays and um, you know a lot of them aren't very good 
bluntly. Do you know what I mean? Lots of them. You read a thousand plays in a year or something, or, th or that was as many you got sent in, and you would read the first 10 pages, some of them, and realize you didn't need to read the next 80 pages because they weren't that great. But, um, and, and a lot of that was just to do with the fundamental rules of like show, don't tell, um, what's the structure of the story, um, you know, keeping not being able to hear the writer, the number of scripts you got to page five and the writer goes well what I've always thought about the current state of the government is mm. and you just realize that's that's the writer just putting their voice into this character to try and say what they want to say you know these plays they're not mouthpieces for writers to explain ex express opinions they're 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 ways in which you put things into motion that try to move an audience um, and you know the audience is clever. They're not going to be moved by somebody trying to just tell them something and ram it down their throat. They're going to be moved by somebody who seems to offer some humility and some intelligence in the way they try and do that. Um, so I think yeah, heart, genuine authenticity, humility, and 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 good narrative structure were the things that like really mark out the good plays. And how often did you find that? And what did you do once you found that? You run down the corridor as the literary manager going, I've got one, I've got one! Um, <laughs> basically, because it's so rare. Um, it's an amazing feeling. I remember reading Lungs, the Duncan McMillan play, um, before anybody knew about it in a cupboard, in the stationary cupboard at Soho. And by the time I'd finished it, I was just in tears, just sitting at this desk, just crying. And it was because it's just, it was just lights out amazing. There's other plays like Pastoral by Tom Eccleshare. I remember reading when I just started at Soho, that was just it was just dreaming bigger than any other. It was like, it was like reading Games in America, you know. It's if, and you don't know the play, but uh, if you don't know the play, it's a thing where nature basically attacks back. So nature starts growing at ten times its normal rate, and and so trees start coming through. And it's but other than that, it's just the story of this family in this little tenement flat trying to escape. Um, but you know the oak trees keep coming through the floor, and there's an amazing line where he says, "I went into Waitrose, and there was a vole strutting down the aisle, <laughs> strutting." You know, uh, so but you read things like that, and you just go, "Oh wow!" You know, how awesome would this be? So those moments are incredible; they're absolutely incredible. Um, and then there's those, and then there's the moments in between where you go, you see in one scene something really, really golden, and you go, and and there's a really liberating moment. You go, ah, and I know what's wrong with the other two thirds. So I can, you know, I can talk to this writer and go, look, what you're doing there is that you've, you know, you're trying to tell two plays at once. Pick the play you want to do, write that. And, and, and when you feel you've got that to give, that's a really cool moment as well. But, but I mean, literary management, in my experience with literary management is incredibly good people who are incredibly dedicated to young writers who work astoundingly hard in something that can be quite like droll and drudge drudgery and you know you have to kind of just keep going through the scripts because the moment when you find a good play is just so amazing because you've got a lot of power in your hands haven't you in that role you've got the ability to make or break potentially a yeah. writer yeah and you've got yeah and I, I got really scared about that when I first started actually it's a really good question um, Sarah Dickinson who's the best dramaturg I've ever worked with she sort of said I was like I'm really you know but what if I get it wrong and she just turned around and went there's a thousand scripts coming in you're going to get some of them wrong like, you're just going to get it wrong. Surrender that immediately. Like, you're obviously going to get one or two wrong. You're obviously going to pass a play that could could be brilliant. Um, so just give up on that and then just go with what you think, your approach, what you think is good about it. You're going to get some wrong the other way as well. You're going to send me plays that you think are brilliant that I think are rubbish. <laughs> so don't worry. You know, everybody does that. And um, I think it's just a thing in the, in the industry generally. You know, everybody's, that you know, there can be such a sort of macho culture of everything has to be perfect and right all the time. And actually, like, you know, 
probably going to get some of it wrong. Just don't don't worry about it really. Um, but yeah, and I think if you sit down and think about the power you've got, you either turn into a horrible person or you get really scared and run away. So try not to do it. I think would be my. That's why I did. Josh. Yeah. Fat Git. Yeah. Is the name of your theatre company? Was we've closed. What's down the name of your? Oh yeah, no, I'm sorry yeah. to hear no, that. No, no, that's right. Tell that's me about right. Fat Git though. What was that all about? Fat Git was a wonderful mad dream. That so basically the. Um, uh, a group of us at university um, all really, really loved theatre. All really, really loved inventive, crazy theatre that we didn't know. Uh, theatre where we didn't know how the person had made it. A lot like those books I was talking about. So we loved Gecko. We loved... Um, uh, we loved... There was a guy who used to do these shows up in Edinburgh, and now I'm going to forget what they were called. Um, he did like a one-man noir detective thing that was like he played every character, and it was just extraordinary. We loved... Operation Greenfield by Little Bulb, um, who are an amazing company, who just made these shows and you go, how on earth did you get there? Dickie Bo. We just loved all those people. Really big physical stuff. So we we <laughs> decided to... Um, and you always react to what came before as well. So the generation above me at uni was Jack Lowe and Curious Directive. made very, very beautiful, very gorgeously collaborative plays. And so we went, right, well, we're going to make grubby, weird, anarchic, mental plays. Um, because we wanted something different, um, and so, and so, yeah, and so we got really interested in Buffon and in grotesques, basically, uh, and in. I thought you meant the Juventus goalkeeper there. From no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 as in, as in, you know, Buffon characters yes, sorry, yes. Uh, and, and great grotesques and stuff, and um, what what they could be like, and so we called the company Fat Git, and um, and we had like five, six, seven joyous years of making these completely nuts ambitious plays we did a sci-fi play about um a pill that can change gender so you can be a man on the weekend and a woman in the week or whatever you know and and um uh we you know we did that as a sci-fi funk show uh with a big funk soundtrack two live guitarists for about 500 quid you know we did an adaptation of the uh, um a Gogol story called The Nose, where a man, where we literally built an entire papier-mâché nose costume that this guy ran around in. You know, the, the the ambition of it was absolutely brilliant. None of the shows were like brilliant. Some of them were very good, and we, I was really proud of all of them. But the point was is that everybody was like had the freedom to work out what they're doing. And what's amazing about Fat Kit is that like all of the core members of that, one of them went to Gollier, um, and now is doing his own kind of solo comedy stuff, and is an actor as well. Um, uh, and, and, and another one became one of the founding members of um, Barrel Organ and is doing all that. Um, one's just graduated from Guildhall, two have just graduated from RADA. Um, you know, everybody from that has gone on. Oh, um, Amy's just come back from tour in Australia where she was playing the snail in the um, Tall Stories. You know, so like everybody's gone into theatre professionally. And so it was a really lovely sort of few so there years. Were, there were a lot of fat gits then by the sound of it. There are, yes. There are a few. They're, they're all around you. Fantastic. <laughs> um, Josh, I want to ask you about a quote on your website that I saw, which yeah. is uh, where you say that, well, you don't say, but it says neatness isn't everything. Is that something that you uh, go by as a director then, based on what you just said about fat git? Is that your aesthetic? Is that your style? Oh God! What does it mean? I, yeah, what does it mean? Um, so it's from Barney Frank, who is was the first um, American congressman to uh, um, run as an openly gay um, congressman, 
Um, and he, but and before he did that, he he he's kind of famously quite short and shabby, and his he's got a very peculiar accent, so it's quite hard to hear. And he once ran on the ticket, and he just it was Barney Frank, and underneath it was a picture of him, and underneath it just said neatness isn't everything. And I just think it's a, <laughs> did he win? And I can't remember whether he ran that race, I probably, whether he won that race. I don't know, but I, I just love the I love the the gesture of it. It's just you know, I'm I'm bit shabby and I don't really dress that smartly and no um, <laughs> you're in a tux right now <laughs> well apart from today I dress up for you, mm-hmm. you know. um, but uh, yeah so uh, so I liked it for that but also yes I think you can distance people by very very smartly presented shows you know you can you can you can shows that just click and work brilliantly and you never see how any of the tricks are done they're beautiful and, and magical in that they surprise you and you go oh wow how did they do that but I'm always I'm always much more interested in the human in the human connection. You know, a lot of the plays I make are quite political, or I try to make them political, but on very humanitarian lines, you know, on humane lines, about two people sort of connecting and understanding each other in some way. Um, and I find that neatness can sometimes be a block to that. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm uncomfortable in a tux, but, <laughs> you know, it's like the best conversations at weddings happen after 10 pints when everybody's taken their bow tie off. And, you know, breaking down some of that formality just gets you to a point where you can be a bit more honest with people. Um, so to that extent, it's part of, part informs my work a bit, yeah. And that's, I assume that's what you've done on the, the fringe scene in London and also the off-Broadway scene uh, in the States. How do those two scenes compare and are they both as unneat as each other? Um, well, the, my, the, the foray into off-Broadway, I was as, was as an assistant, as an associate um, for a show that, Joe Murphy director called Blink which was very neat and actually sort of like <laughs> anally tidy the whole thing was in squares because it was about the two characters in it were it's quite good to be good. anally tidy yeah 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 <laughs> right um, and uh, the uh, and then for the fringe yeah you know a bit of that that roughness kind of came in but um, I think the thing I don't know much about Broadway but the, the thing about the London fringe scene I think it's just important to say it's like it's really really difficult like it's really tough and, you know, and I say this understanding that I am of the demographic that is most favoured by that um, section of the industry, you know, wrongly um, as well. So, you know, probably life in, has been much easier for me than a lot of other people. But even so, it's just difficult. And I think there's a lot of complacency um, on the other side. You know, once you get through the fringe um, and you have a, an amazing opportunity like I've had with JMK, that people kind of look back and they go, oh, well, everybody has to do it, don't they? And you go, well... Yeah, but it's too tough. Like it's too it's too much to say that everybody has to sacrifice three thousand of pounds of their own money to you know underbelly at, at, at the Edinburgh Festival because Edinburgh University are going to charge them all the rent for that. There was an amazing line I remember at a festival, a, a Buffon, uh, grotesque performer called um, the Big Red Bastard. Not just for French, but that was his name. And he had this amazing line. Where he said, "Do the maths. There's two thousand five hundred artists." At, uh, shows at this festival and the only people not making money are the artists and you know that it, you do feel that in the fringe like that, that it's just so expensive nowadays and it's so it's so tough that you know and you you spend I spent a whole year last year raising 12 grand to do a show at the Fimbra that I got three or four press to and one agent to and one artistic director to and that was it and that's my, that's my whole year that's my whole year of my career of what I want to do and five of the people that you really want to turn up turn up and that's it and 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 the amount of effort that goes into that um so yeah i just think 
I think, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for the people that may work on the fringe because it's just tough, you know, it's really tough. And as a younger director, have you ever felt taken advantage of or have you ever thought that actually this isn't right? There was a interview with you in the stage where you said something very telling where you said that you uh, paid for your fringe projects through your fees as an assistant director. Yeah. Um, that to me doesn't sound like that's a sustainable way of making theatre. I don't think it's a sustainable way of funding theatre. Absolutely. I think... The, but it just it just shows you how how nuts the system's got because you know that's the point. Like so, I was at the RSC. I was being an assistant director there, and the RSC quite rightly you know pay their assistant directors well because the RSC you know they really rely on them. They really and they quite respect them, and 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 you get a lot of of that um, respect. And so and, and part of that is just in how much they pay you. But you you get given that money, and it's the first time that I'd ever after being gradu- after having graduated uni it's the first time that I was ever just paying my rent on directing though I was assistant directing um, and then you go right well I need to convert this into myself making work and now obviously the RSC is not going to turn around and give me a show just because I AD'd there you know the RSC is huge and and um, they carefully select their, their, their directors and so on so I, I want to go and make some work this year how am I going to do that well I guess like you know the link I had at that time was with the Fimber and I had a play I wanted to do now you have a choice then, you know, do you take your wage, which you do deserve to just spend on curries and drink, like you should, you know, just should be spending money. But how much does your career mean to you? Because this job's going to end and you need something else to happen after it. And only you are going to make that happen. So yeah, you know, you twig that at the beginning of the job and you start putting away money so that when you when you finish the job, you can go over to Neil McPherson and go, look, I've got the money to to make this happen, you know, to, to put down the deposit on, on a slot. Um, and now I can do the show. Um, uh, and, and even that, you know, you didn't, you still can't pay people properly. So, so I didn't pay myself, but you know, and paid other people more than I was getting, but still not enough and stuff like that. And you try and, you try and make it work how you can, but yeah, it's just, you know, that's, that shouldn't, that, that seems crazy. And have you ever felt burnout? You know, living that kind of life in that kind of routine, constantly oh, looking on to the next yeah, fringe the production. Time, all the time, all the time. And, um, you know, I'm really happily open about the fact that, like, I suffer with a whole load of mental health stuff um, that is, you know, probably just it's, it, it's me and who I am, and, and that's totally fine. But a lot of it is exacerbated by the work stress and so on. And, and that is the same for, like, there's hundreds of actors I know and directors and so on that suffer with that kind of stuff because it is just really, really t- tough. And, and you're um, you're following this thing that, you know, I became a director because it was a thing I realized I could do for eight hours a day and go home happy and be like, yeah, that was a really enjoyable day, right? So, so once you know that that's what you want to do, you know, you do, you just you just have to keep working at it and keep working at it and keep working at it. Um, but there's some times when it just feels like you're not going to get there. You know, I've done six, seven, well, like, done six or seven shows that hadn't really broken anywhere, really done anything. Like, say, Fat Git was great fun, but we never really had any big success. I'd applied for the JMK six times and got rejected at the first round every year. I interviewed eight times with the RSC before I got a job there. You know, that kind of level of just getting knocked back the whole time is like can be really depressing but where was your motivation to reapply 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 at the JMK or at the RSC what's the only thing you wanted it's the only thing you've ever found that you can do happily for eight hours a day so I mean what other motivation do you need I mean like it is that it's not that I can't do anything else it 
which I've, I've heard some directors say, well, I direct because I can't do anything else. And it's going, no, of course I can do anything else. I have five jobs. Do you know what I mean? I do do other things. I'm a copywriter. I'm a teacher. I'm a this, that, and the other. But when it comes down to picking out of those jobs which one you want to spend the rest of your life doing, it's just no contest. And so if that's the price, like if, if that's how much it means to you, um, then you, you make an individual personal decision about whether you're able to soldier on through the next six months for that. And if there's a point at which it feels so out of reach that you don't have that motivation anymore, you stop. And, and that's fine. That's totally fine. You know, life is to be enjoyed. And if you're not enjoying the pursuit of it, then, then, then you stop pursuing it. You know? So that's your advice to anyone listening who did, took a show to Edinburgh and was thoroughly and exhausted totally yeah. and lost all their money yeah. and are not an assistant director anytime soon. Yeah. Your advice is just to keep at it or do so the else. best the best piece of advice I ever ever got was is from a brilliant director called John Dove and he just said look the goal here is not to be the hot ticket it's not to do a brilliant show it's not to go down in the history books the goal is to get to the age of 80 and not be bruised by the experience that is it that's all you're trying to do you're all we're all in this because we enjoy making work and making shows and trying to trying to move people with those shows you have to enjoy the process of trying to do that enough um don't waste your whole life being miserable pursuing that because your life is your life you know you need to be happily pursuing it and if there's you know so yeah it's it's work out what it means to you and if that's worth the cost and if it is worth the cost go forward smiling about it and try and try and stay as positive as you can and try not to be bruised the moment you get bitter the moment you get angry at the industry the moment you get I mean, Ill, you know, illegitimately angry at the industry. There are things to be rightfully angry about. But, um, you know, the moment you kind of get jaded in that way and you stop enjoying your sort of day-to-day life of trying to do this job, I mean, it's just not worth it, I think. Josh. Yeah. Would you self-define, would you describe yourself as a millennial? I think probably yes. Probably but yes. Probably a millennial trapped in the body of a, like, 40-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I'm just... The reason I ask you that is because I watched uh, My Name is Rachel Corey two nights ago. I really enjoyed it. And there was a number of, we've not spoken about it yet, but there's a number of elements in it which made me think, ah, th- this is a millennial story, this is, because there was there was a sense of hope in there, despite the fact that it's obviously yeah. a very sad and poignant piece, uh, and a sense of empowerment and political engagement. I wondered if if you shared those those feelings and whether they informed your work. Yeah, abs- massively they do. Um I think, you know, it's a terrifying time in politics and it's an incredibly inspiring time in politics in the same breath. And I think there's a real... There's two things that relate from millennials to Rachel Curry, I think. Firstly is there's a feeling now that in order to say anything about anything, you have to be fully informed. And by fully informed, I mean have digested every single possible opinion that is available on the internet in order to be able to say anything. Um, You know... It's like if I, I, I express some opinion about X to you and you go, oh, well, but I read this thing and then somebody else has read something else. And five minutes later, I go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said anything at all. And that means that you get a whole load of people who or you get a feeling that you're only entitled to say something once you're sort of at the age of 80 and have done three PhDs in the subject. And that's not true. That's just not right you are entitled to say what you believe based on the information you have to hand. There's obviously a difference between being informed and being ignorant, but you're entitled to say what you think and what you believe and whether you think those things are right or wrong. And, you know, that's fine. Um, And Rachel did that. 
And she kept saying as she went along, I don't know the political implications of my words is one of the lines from the play. I'm not the best informed. I don't know this. I don't know that. But it seems to me that this is what's happening. So I'm going to go and do something about it. And that there's um, and there's an optimism in that that's fantastic. And then there's the other thing is that we also get told that the intelligent position is always the cynical position. Like to be cynical is to be intelligent. You, if you trash everything and you say, oh, yeah, but it's just like that, isn't it? You know, everybody's like that. Everybody's corrupt, aren't they? That's the intelligent position. And, and it's not. That's the laziest possible position. There are plenty of MPs that are not corrupt and are nice people and they're trying their hardest. And yes, lots of them are Tories. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and not every, you know, I, I don't believe Theresa May is evil. I don't believe, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is evil. It, it, it's, there's all of these extraordinary things that get thrown around are usually the simplest, least subtle points of view, and they're usually the most cynical. And actually, there is something so brave in intelligent optimism, in turning around and going, like, we have a generation of some of the most politically engaged young people that we've ever had. You know, we have um, a generation where um, diversity is kind of really coming on in the arts. You know, there is a big conversation about it. It's still not where it should be. It needs to come a lot further. But, you know, look at the conversations we're having. Look at look at the fact that we finally got Harvey Weinstein. You know, that there's an, there's an optimism there that 10 years ago, he was doing all that stuff and nobody was talking about it. And then we spoke about it. And now he doesn't have that job. And that power has been... T- you know, there are things to be optimistic about, even in Trump's... Even in Trump world. So you're you're optimistic... Yeah, I think I try to be intelligently optimistic, yeah. And as a director, do you have a duty to sort of share this optimism to kind of um, empower audiences with 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 that point of view? I think if you ever get into um, a duty to try and do anything political to your audience, you're kind of lost. Your only duty to the audience is to move them. And you move them, you just try and emotionally move them. The direction they move in is up to them, <laughs> you know? Um, that's it. Some people, some people might see Rachel Corrie, decide they don't like her, and be moved away from her and be angered by it. That's still an effective piece of theatre. I probably, maybe it's not accurately effective. Maybe I haven't effectively done what I was hoping to do. But, um, but you know, you, you're, all you're really trying to do is elicit emotional responses from people. It's an empathy machine. You're trying to, you're trying to get people in the audience to look at the people on the stage and go, "We are the same." Or I understand you, even though we are different, if that makes sense. Well, the, the two lines that moved me the most from My Name is Rachel Corrie um, were all sort of around hope and the individual and, and, and society. The first one being when she says, I can't save the planet single-handedly, but I can uh, wash the dishes, uh, about sort of the power of micro-action, which then potentially leads to, leads to macro-action. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, privilege shelters people from the consequences of their actions. Yeah, yeah. Did, did these lines stick with you when you were directing oh, the play? Oh, hugely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, um, especially the um, the really cautious ones. The, the, I think we all have a right to be critical of government policies, any government policy, especially policies which we're funding, is a beautiful line, I think. And then there's another one where she says... Um, being local and being respectful of the local is a big part of my ethic, I guess. But it's it's this kind of ambivalence about I don't quite know where I am, but I know I'm somewhere, and I know I'm moving. I'm I'm going to keep trying to work things out. And yeah, those two that you mentioned, you know, the the idea that I can wash dishes, there is a thing I can offer, I can do something. 
that's kind of amazing. You know, I think a lot of the millennial generation have lost that feeling that you can do anything. I can tweet. <laughs> it's about all we feel empowered to say. I can tweet and I can post and we know those do nothing. But those... Do, do they do nothing? I mean, look at the the revolutions in North Africa. Sure, you're quite right. They don't do nothing. No, they don't do nothing. But you're totally right. What I mean is that the ability to be able to say I can do something and I'm that other people think I shouldn't feel entitled to do like I can go out and volunteer I can go down to the soup kitchen I can do this I can do that um, is a bit of a revolutionary thing to say at the moment I guess what I mean is that I can tweet and I can Facebook other things that we're told we're allowed to do if you have a political opinion tweet about it and that's fine but um, joining a march or you know um, organizing a protest um okay what you're a bit of a political nut and suddenly you know suddenly that's something that's a bit out of the ordinary um yeah i think that's what I was trying to say. as somebody who is of a similar age to me josh how can we empower other people of a similar age or how can we form communities form networks of people who are more engaged more activated in the world around them I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry, I kind of just threw that question at you. <laughs> no, you, no, no, you have no reason to have the answer to that question, by the way. Well, I think, I, well, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think everybody, like, you just try and, you try and do it in whatever way that you can. Well, I guess, I, I guess, um, you know, I try and do it through theatres. You know, you have a community of 60 people there for an hour and a half, and by the end, they all feel connected mm. to some way. You know, that's why I really love theatre and why I'm not so interested in film is because when you laugh in a theatre, you're really acutely aware of whether the person next to you laughs or doesn't laugh. And if you cry, you know, are other people crying? So you understand that you as a group of people are all the same because this performance is making you all feel similar things. Whereas when you watch telly, you know, you're kind of on your own, aren't you? And, and you could be laughing at something. You could be laughing at some joke that you think is hilarious, which maybe, I don't know, is deeply racist, say. And if you were laughing, if you were the only person in a group of 60 people that laughed at that joke and, and nobody else did, you... that you would understand something more, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, that, it's those, those communities. So I guess that's that's the way I try and do it. But, yeah, how, how do we make people more empowered? I think you just keep telling people that... I think you just you, we just keep reminding each other that, like, we are citizens in the world. We can... It's our world. It's our life to live and try and make as we would have it for others. And just you keep trying to do that in whatever way that feels good for you, feels effective for you. But... Um, yeah, and just don't ever, don't ever accept anybody telling you that you're counted out of the conversation. I agree. <laughs> we, we've started talking about My Name is Rachel Corey, so let's talk about how we, we got there. You yeah. are the winner. Congratulations of the Thank JMK Award 2017, Thank you. which allows you to put on a, a show, put on yeah. a production here at the Young Vic. Um, what did that mean to you, especially after all of those times of, uh, of entering? I can't even express what it meant. Like, the moment you said that, a shiver went down my spine again, and it happened seven months ago. You are the winner of the JMK Award yeah, 2017. Yeah, stop it, stop it. You are the winner of the... <laughs> <laughs> it's, um... I just can't... I can't even get near what it means. It's, um... The... Like you say, it just... It's those... It's you know, five Edinburgh campaigns of raising that money and putting that thing in and flyering all day and then the show happening in the evening. And the thing that guides you through that is you go, I think I'm good at this. I think I can do this well. Um, and I think I have something to kind of offer. Um, but you never get much 
confirmation of that and you keep telling yourself that I'm good I'm good and it's hard to draw the line between self-belief and arrogance in that state because you know if you do if you do seven shows and none of them get reviewed that well and nobody really turns up at what point do you just become a crazy person going no I am good <laughs> even though all of the evidence seems to suggest that you're not that good um so it's a it's a massive affirmation of uh, you personally that you go oh my god I'm, I think I can actually do this that's wonderful and other people think I can as well that's incredible so so that that's there's a personal angle to it there having applied for it every year um, and what the, com- one, the what the competition represents is that you know that um, a big part of a theatre director's life is just applying for stuff and of all of and there's a kind of calendar of applications that you go through you know and different things pop into that so the JMK has always been in January the old Vic 12 comes around sort of mid middle of the year um, you know and, and, and as a director you begin to learn when these applications are coming up you know when the Royal Court Assistant Director when the Almeida Assistant Director when are the Young Vic Assistant Directors when are the Genesis competition you know you know where they are and January is always JMK time and I wrote the, you know and, and just but you never got through never never got past the first round so when it happened it was just um it's the most extraordinary opportunity to be able to finally have the full resources to make a show that you believe in and that you think you can do well and that you feel has merit um it's lovely and why did you go for my name is Rachel Corrie because a lot of the stuff we've just been talking about, I've been a bit more involved in politics over the last couple of years. I do some speech coaching for um, some party politicians and I and with the Lib Dems. And um, I have just been getting more, like, feeling I want to be more involved since Brexit and a bit before that. Um, mainly since the since the, 20, the 2015 election. Um, and, um, and... When I first read the play, it just struck me that this is a young person who, um, like you say, I can wash dishes, who just decides to go and do something and in doing so becomes something greater than herself. And that's kind of what progressive politics to an extent is. It's about leaning into something that is greater than yourself, Um, whether it's a country, whether it's a movement, whether it's a belief, whether it's an ideology, it's, it's leaning in rather than checking out. And I think that was the thing that drew me to it. And the play is taken is a verbatim play taken mm. from uh, Rachel's diaries. Rachel mm-hmm. was a peace activist who was killed um, in two thousand three by an Israeli bulldozer. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, this play uh, is a controversial play, mm-hmm. and for every night uh, of this run, there have been protesters who claim the play to be biased, to have a very pro. Palestinian uh, point of view and, and and label it propaganda. Mm-hmm. Has that affected you as a director that you that you have to literally walk past this every day as you come into the theatre? Um, How do you deal with it? Uh, I think it did affect me a little bit just in rehearsals, actually. And again, mainly just because um, some of the people who were angry about it were, were tweeting and not always the most respectful stuff. And, and then it began to get into my head a little bit because I thought... It just made me doubt slightly. I said, "Oh, you know, do I have? Do I really understand the issue well enough? Am I entitled to be talking about this?" And I kind of worried for a bit, but then it was good because it it actually meant that we came back to the fundamentals of the play, and that is that this is this was one person's perspective of her journey in political activism in this situation. She was doing what she thought was right by what she had seen, by the evidence in front of her, and trying to act on that. She says numerous times through it, you know, um, I don't know the full facts, although I think she was very well informed. 
but she says, you know, she's constantly admitting her own faults. She says at one point very, very clearly, you know, that there's this pressure to conflate being disagreements with the policies of Israel as a state uh, with Jewish people. And this is this idea that if you criticize Israel, you are criticizing Jewish people. Um, and, you know, that's wrong for a whole host of reasons. But mainly it's wrong because it means that if as an Israeli, you are not allowed to criticize your government unless, you know, if you do, you get sort of labeled as a self-hating Jew and um, and things like this. So, you know, I think we just came back into to understanding that this is this was Rachel's journey and she was acting by the information that she, she saw and that she that she experienced. Um, so in that way, it was almost slightly helpful. Um, and then and then in terms of walking past the theatre, past them to get into the theatre, no, it doesn't really affect us, I think. I think you can't make a play about protest and then be angry that mm. there are protesters outside. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they totally have a right to express what they think um, and they're doing that and they've been completely allowed to do it, you know, the young Vic have been amazing about it. You know, they're, they're, they're saying what they think. I disagree with them, you know, but it's fine to disagree with people. <laughs> you know, We need to learn that more, don't we, that it's fine to disagree with people. That's Absolutely. something that's missing Absolutely. from political discourse. Um, Rachel Corey's parents came to see mm. it on press night. What was that like for you? Uh, um, incredibly awe-inspiring, kind of moving... I just can't, don't really have any words. But they're, 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 they've got an amazing amount of sort of moral size. They're kind of just these incredibly humane people who seem to just... I don't know. It's like talking to people who've been to the Arctic and back. They've just done it. Um, they've been through so much. They've had to deal with so much that you feel very small and protected and comforted by their presence there at all in a weird way. Um, they're incredibly nice. They were very nice about the show. I it was strange because actually, you know, we all meet Rachel for the first time seeing the show, and therefore it's quite upsetting because you you see this person and you see that she died. Um, so I thought this would be an unbearable thing to have to sit through and watch your the story of your daughter being retold and the story of her death. Um, but they've seen it so many times, and of course they have their own memory of Rachel, which we don't get anywhere near. This isn't the first time they're meeting her. This is a time where they get to hear her words come back to them in in through the voice of a different production and um they appear to really enjoy it and they said they really enjoyed it so yeah kind of a, a moment i will never ever forget i think um meeting them yeah josh listening to you talk uh and hearing about your hope your optimism it sort of revitalized me that actually perhaps we can <laughs> make things better Very kind of you thank you so much for coming in this afternoon and all the best for the rest of the run of my name is Rachel Corey, which is on at the young vic until the 26th of october 2017 and for everything that the future holds all the best josh thank you thank you thank you for joining us for this episode of off book by the young vic if you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.